Well, good morning, everyone. We are in the second week of a series that we are calling Love Never Fails. And uh, last week, last week, we took a look at what is that kind of love that never fails? What is, how would we define that? How would we look at it? How would we explain it? What is that kind of love that never fails? Because the world tells us there's a lot of different love out there. There's a lot of different expressions of love. There's a lot of different theories about love. But, but biblically speaking, if God is love, then what kind of love are we talking about? And last week we saw that it's this word agape, right? Agape. And it simply means this. It means this. It's a, it's a love that is pure. It's a love that is willful. It's a love that is intentional. It's a love that is sacrificial. And it's a love that hopes and desires the greatest good of somebody else. It's pure. It's willful. It's intentional. It's sacrificial, and it hopes the best for somebody else. It's a, it's a hard love to live up to. It's a hard love to, to live out uh, because it, it really does put us in a place of, of uh, stepping behind, right? It really does elevate the other person. It really does look at the best interest of somebody else. Now, now next week, next week, we're going to, we're going to take a look at what does, what does it look like for us to love as God loves? What does it look like, practically speaking, for us to love the way God loves? How do we love other people the way God loves us? Now, before we get there, if we're going to love other people and we, uh, don't just want a definition of love. We need to frame this kind of love. Is there a frame of reference that we can lean into? Is there a frame of reference that we can point to for the kind of love that, that we understand God to be, but also the kind of love that we are supposed to act out? Is there an example of that that we can look at for ourselves, consider it, and then, again next week, put it into practice? But what's the frame of reference? How do we see it? How do we understand it? What does it look like for God to love us? What does it look like for God to love us? Sit with that for a minute. Think about it. Think about, think about the, the, the week that you've had. Think about the things that you've walked through. We say it all the time, God loves you. God's there for you. God believes in you. God wants the best for you. God loves you. But do we ever just stop and count the ways? Have you stopped this week to count the ways that God loves you? Have you considered that? I mean, it's, it's a phrase that sometimes we just throw it around. God loves you. Oh, thank you. But what does that mean? What does, that, what does it look like? So if I were to ask you today to paint a picture of what it looks like for God to love you, what would it look like? If I were to ask you to, to write a poem or to write a story, what would that story be? What would the poem say 
about how God loves you. Sit with it for a moment. Let it, let it stir your spirit. Let it, let, it, let it agitate you. How does God love me? I mean, I know it to be true. I, I believe it, I believe it at, a, at a theoretical level. I believe it at a, at a theological level, right? I mean, we sang about it all morning, right? We sang about the theology of God's love all morning. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? We understand the theology. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, but God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We understand the theology and the doctrine. What I'm asking you is what did it feel like and look like to you this week? What does taking that kind of love and applying it to our lives look like? How did God love me this week? There's a story in the, in the New Testament that Jesus tells about what it's like to see and to know and to experience God's love. He puts it in a very practical way. He uses some very practical examples and illustrations. And, and it comes from a story that maybe you and I wouldn't, wouldn't expect it to come from because we often tell this story from the perspective of somebody else in this story. But I would ask us to look at the perspective of a different person in this story. If you grew up in the church or have a church background, or, or even if you pay attention to some phrases in pop culture, you'll know this phrase, the prodigal son. The prodigal son. If you grew up in the church, it's, it's, you, you've, you're probably familiar with this story. You probably uh, remember it from a VeggieTales video or a flannel graph kind of thing, right, when you were a kid. The story of the prodigal son who wandered away and came back home. Now, often we tell the story from the perspective of the son, what was going on in his world, what was going on in his life. But today, I want us to think about this. What was the posture of the father in the story? When we look at the posture of the father in the story of the prodigal son, we see in a very practical way how God loves us. We see in a very practical way what it's like for God to look at us, to embrace us, and to love us. Not theoretically, not theologically, not in some kind of doctrine, but pragmatically. This is how God loves us. Now, the story takes place in in Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. And uh, let, me, let me summarize the story for you uh, um, for a moment. We don't have time to go into every verse of this chapter. It's, it's a wonderful chapter. And in Luke chapter 15, it starts with Jesus attending a party of sinners and those people. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about those people. Those people who are out there in the world that, you know, they're not really like us. They do things that we don't do. They're those people. Well, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is at a party at their house. Jesus is hanging out with those people. 
Jesus is, is interacting with them. Jesus is sharing a meal with them. Now, remember what I said a number of weeks ago. Anytime we read in the New Testament that somebody shared a meal with somebody, there's, there's spiritual significance there. Because the sharing of a meal means I'm welcoming you into my association. I am willing to put my reputation on the line for you because now I'm associated with you. That's the power of the meal in the New Testament. So Jesus, Jesus was, was, it says this, now the tax collectors and sinners, if you have your Bible, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were, were grumbling, saying, saying, this man welcomes sinners, receives sinners and eats with them. That was the charge against Jesus. That he likes people. And he shares a meal with all kinds of people. Even people that don't think they belong to church or to God. And what did Jesus do? He sat with them. As they were talking, as the Pharisees were were talking about what Jesus was doing and how he's hanging out with these people, and as he's actually ministering to them. I love what Jesus does here. Jesus knows that this is what they're saying. You ever been in a situation like that? You know people are talking about you, right? And you know what they're saying. You know what they're talking about. You probably know the the context of what they're saying. And I love what Jesus does. He doesn't throw out a phrase. He doesn't throw out a word. He He doesn't quote some doctrine. You know what Jesus does? He tells a story. He said, let me tell you a story. Like, I know what you're saying. I know how you feel about me hanging out with people that you don't agree with. But let me tell you a story. In fact, he doesn't tell one story. He tells three stories. And it's this third story that I want us to drill down on this morning. It's this third story that he tells where he's driving home his point. It has different, it has multiple layers of meaning, multiple layers of nuance, multiple layers of impact. It's fairly long, but here it is in a summary. There's a man and he has two sons. This is the story. There's a man and he has two sons. He's a wealthy man. He's a landowner and he has two sons. And the youngest son comes to his father one day and he says, Hey, I want my inheritance. I want what's mine. I want to cash out right now. I want all chips in, cash me out. I want to go on my way. He wants his inheritance now while the father is still alive. Imagine how that would feel as a parent. What is the son saying? I want to disown myself from my family. I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. You ever feel like that to your parents? Yeah, you did. It's called high school. We all did. But he did it. Like he went to his dad. He's like, I want my money. I want it. I want, I want to separate. I want divorced from the family. I want to cash in my chips. It's like you're dead to me. And I'm going to go do what I want to do. So the father, the father, the father gives him the money, cashes him out. And it would have been a tremendous amount of money. A tremendous amount of money. And the son goes out, and if you follow along in chapter 15, verse 13, it says this, that he squandered his property on reckless living. 
He squandered his property on reckless living. And at the end of the day, he realizes he's got nothing left. Nothing. He's poor. He's broke. He's disassociated from the family. What's he going to do? And so in a moment, in a moment, he says to himself, I've got to figure this out. Here's what I'm going to do. I, I don't have any more money to leverage, so I'm going to go hire myself out. I'm going to be a servant. And what does he do? He goes and he becomes a pig farmer. He's a servant on a pig farm. And he's treated poorly. He's treated horribly. And he realizes in, the, in this lowest of low moments, he realizes, you know what? Even back home, my dad doesn't treat our servants like this. Those servants are taken care of. Those servants are well cared for. My dad doesn't even do this. And so he's, he's going through this in his mind, in his, in his brokenness. He comes to his senses. And he misses home. And here's what he comes up with. He says, all right. He says, I'll go back. I'll confess my sin. I'll accept my consequences. And I'll work as a servant just to be home. Because it's better to work as a servant at home than to not be at home at all. Yeah, that's it. He says, he's like, that's it. I'll go back. And can you imagine like, like he's rehearsing this all the way home, right? However far the journey was, the scripture says it's a long, it's a long journey. Jesus sets it up as he wandered far away, like he went far away. And so imagine him on the way home, right? Imagine him on the way home. I've sinned against God and my family. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I will, I will just take me in as your servant. I'm no longer where I've sinned against you and my family. I've sinned against heaven and God. I, I, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just give me a job as a servant. Just give me a job as a servant. Verse 18. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, watch what he says. Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. He recognizes his brokenness lies in two places, spiritually and temporally. He's broken the relationship with God and he's broken the relationship with his family. And this is what he says. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. So he's playing this in his head, right? Okay, this is what I'm going to do. All the way home. I've sinned against heaven and against you. Treat me as, just take me back. Just take me back. What would you do as the father? What would you do as the parent? Don't read ahead. Ginger already, don't read ahead. What would you do? Huh. About time you came home. See, I told you it wasn't going to work. See, I told you. Get out back. Stuff to do. You want to be a servant? Fine. Get at it. Or 
Maybe he comes and the door's locked, right? How many of us would just lock the door? Hey, you, you made your choice. Live with it. You wrote us off. You disowned the family. You dishonored us. You put shame to our name. Go. He disowned the family. He wasted his wealth. He shamed the family name and he soiled their reputation. Now for a moment, have any, have us, have any of us ever done that to our family? Have any of us ever done maybe not all of those things, but maybe one of those things? We ever shame the family? We ever disown them? Maybe in our heart or in our mind? Have we ever, we ever uh, uh, sinned against our family? Against God? Against heaven? We ever done something that, man, my dad wouldn't be proud of this. Certainly God's not proud of this. Life is, is broken and Maybe for some of us, it's not turned out the way we thought. We've, we've wasted some really good moments, maybe some of us. We've wasted time on things that are fleeting. We've, we've, we've wasted our wealth on, we've just wasted it. Maybe we said things that we wish we could take back. Or maybe we've even picked up our own reputation along the way. And maybe like the son in the story, we recognize that it really is against heaven and earth that we've sinned. We don't feel worthy. We feel beyond help. We feel like we're, we're beyond saving. And, but like the son in the story, maybe, maybe there's a shot. Maybe I've got a chance. The son in the story is like, I'm going to give it one more shot. And just see if I can at least be close to being home. So he comes to the father. Verse 20, it says this. And he, the son, arose and came to his father. Now, notice the posture of the father. That's the story of the son. Notice the posture of of the father. And the son arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father saw him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What does that say to us? It means the father was looking for him. The father was waiting for him. If somebody is a long way off and somebody sees that person who is a long way off, would it not make sense to think that that other person was looking for them, waiting for them? The posture of the father in this story is one of waiting. When will my son come home? When will he come home? Did you ever get in trouble at home? Did you ever get in trouble at home and maybe you were in one of those families where, where maybe you had a mom or an aunt or a grandmother and whispered in your ear, wait till your dad gets home. I was in an Italian family, so you know, we roll a little differently there. Wait till your dad comes home, right? And here's the father. What is the father doing? Looking for the son. 
I wonder, I wonder if the mother ever saddled up to the father every morning when he stood out on the porch looking down the road for his son, son to come home. I wonder if the mother ever saddled up and just whispered in the father's ear, just wait till your son comes home. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. It's purposeful. He's looking for him. He's, he's searching the horizon for him. And sometimes waiting is the hardest part, isn't it? Any of you hunters out there? You know what it's like to search for something? You know what it's like to look across the horizon for something? You know you can't go chasing after it. You have to let it come to you. It takes waiting. The love that God has for us sometimes shows up like waiting. He waits for us to come to our senses. He waits for us to start heading home. It's not punitive either. It's not like, well, wait till he comes home. It's not punitive. He's waiting and he's filled with anticipation. He's filled with hope. He's filled with expectation. He's praying. You ever pray for someone to come home? To come to their senses? And his father saw him. Verse 20, it says, when he saw him, he felt what? He felt compassion. And he ran to him. What's the posture of the father? Shamelessness. Understand this. This was a rich man who had a lot of wealth, a lot of property, a lot of servants. In that culture and in that day, those wealthy, influential, powerful people postured themselves in a certain way. They walked around their community in a certain way. In the clothing that they had, if you were to run somewhere, what would you have to do? Hike up your robe and run, right? Exposing yourself so that you could run after something. Powerful men in position and authority would never do that. That's why Jesus said, look what the father did. He ran to his son in front of his servants, in front of everybody who could see him. He hiked up his robe. He shamed himself so that he could run to the son. He didn't care. I don't care what it looks like to you. I don't care what it may seem like to you. My son is coming home. I'm running to them. I don't care what you think it should look like. I don't care what you think it should be. I don't care how you think it should work out. It should work this way. I don't care. He's coming home. I'm running to him. It doesn't matter about me. He's home. The father hikes up his robe and takes off on a full sprint. And when he gets to him, what does it say? He embraced him and kissed him. Hugs and kisses. What's the posture of the father? Hugs. 
and kisses. The word here, uh, the, this, this compound uh, embraced and kissed, hugged and kissed, um, the way it's formed, it has the idea of being, being emphatic. Emphatic. The hugs and the kisses were emphatic. Do you ever get a bear hug from somebody and you feel like your breath is going to leave you and then they don't let go? Trying to breathe here, Dad. Trying to breathe. Can you imagine the kisses planted on the cheek? Not one, not two, multiple. Emphatically. Emphatically kissing. Emphatically hugging. Think about it. Have you ever missed someone so much that you say to yourself, if I could just hug them one more time? If I could just kiss them one more time on the cheek? You feel it in your bones, don't you? And this is what the Father does. His posture is one of kisses emphatically and hugs, bear hugs, until you let go because you can't take it anymore. Do you know there's something powerful about a hug? Research from UCLA suggests that hugging someone you care about can reduce feelings of anxiety and depression and even help people better cope with traumatic events. Do you know that? Is it any wonder why sometimes we just want a hug? A 2015 study from Carnegie Mellon showed that the more hugs you got, the less likely you were to get sick. And it seemed to confer some kind of resistance to disease. The hugs were even buffering the effects of conflict. You want to reduce conflict in your life? Hug people. That Carnegie Mellon said that. I didn't say that. But you want to reduce conflict? Hug them. Michael Murphy, assistant professor of psychology at Texas Tech University, said it appears that hugs promote the body to release hormones that protect us from harmful effects of stress. And psychologically, supportive touch can serve as a simple but powerful reminder that there are people in our lives who love us and care for us. The Father excessively and emphatically hugged His Son. Let's let go of the depression. Let's go go of the anxiety. Let's let go of the conflict. Let's let go of the stress. Just, my Son is home. And He hugged Him. And He kissed Him. Verse 21, so, 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 so dad ran out and hugged him and now, now it's the son's turn, right? Because remember, he had, been, he had been rehearsing. Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants, right? So he's got this, he's got this. All right, well, okay. Now he's walking out. Dad comes running. He gets bowled over by dad, right? He's being hugged. He's being kissed. And he's like, all right, all right, hang on, hang on. Hang on, dad, I got to tell you something. Dad, I got to tell you I've, I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And, and I've sinned against you. And, and, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And, and, and what does the deaf father do? 
the father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us what? Not what are we doing as we celebrate? Let us eat. Let us eat. Table fellowship once again. We are going to eat and celebrate. Why? For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and his family began to celebrate. Do you see what the posture of the father was? Forgiving and restoring. You see, the son had the, the, son had the speech I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your sons. But what happened? Where did the father jump in? He couldn't even ask to be what? Nope. He couldn't be. What did the son want to do? I've sinned against heaven and against you. Confession. I'm no longer worthy. He's taking responsibility. Make me a servant, right? Where did the father jump in? Before what? Servant. Why did God forgive and restore before the son could ask to be a servant? Because you don't earn forgiveness. Servants earn their keep, right? Servants earn their keep. Servants have a job to do. And when they do their job, they earn their keep. If I could be one of my father's servants, then I could just be around him, right? What do servants do? They work for it so that they can then enjoy it. They work for it so that they can be included. They work for it so that they can be part of the family. And what did the father do to the son? You don't work for redemption. You don't work for forgiveness. I give it. I give it freely. I give it without, without attachment. What did the father ask for the son to do in return? Nothing. Sit down and have a meal. In fact, what did the father do? Watch, the son confessed, right? I have sinned against heaven and against you. Confession. I'm no longer worthy to be part of your family. Um, uh, 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 understanding of what I've done, right? Contrition, right? And what did the father do? You are forgiven. You are restored. You are redeemed. What did he ask for? The very first thing. He turned to the servants and he said, you quickly do this. The ring is a sign of authority. The robe is a sign of placement in the family. The slippers on the feet separates him from the servants in the field. And the feast is table fellowship that says he's welcomed home. What is the posture of the Father for those who turn to Him in confession and repentance. 
love, compassion, understanding, and welcome home. What's our posture towards people who have hurt us? What's what's our posture to the people who have broken our heart? To the people who've broken their promise to us? To the people who have shamed us? How, How do we treat someone who's looking for forgiveness? What does it look like to love the way God loves? For some of us, we're trying to figure out how to love our own prodigal, right? I have to believe in a room this size that some of us have a name of a son or a daughter or a niece or a nephew, an aunt or an uncle, a brother or a sister, a mom or a dad, who is that prodigal? And we're trying to figure out how do I, how do I, in the midst of all their whatever, how do I love them? How, how, how do I, how do I love them? How do I interact with them? How do I, right? We're trying to figure it out. Maybe we, maybe we need to re-examine our own posture. And we need to be praying for that posture of the Father. For others today, maybe, maybe it's time to come home. We've been coming to our senses. I love in verse 18 where he says... Um, I'm sorry, in verse 17, if you have it in your Bible, it says this. But when he came to himself, some, some versions say when he came to his senses, verse 17, when he came to his senses. Maybe for some of us here today, God's been doing something over the past couple weeks or maybe the past month or maybe this year. Maybe God's been doing something and we're not exactly sure what he's been doing, but but, but we've had a change of heart and we've had a change of thought and we, we're, we're reexamining our lives and we're like, what, the path I'm on just does not make sense. Where I'm going with my life, this isn't going to work. Like we know it, but we keep putting it aside because we just want to keep doing what we're doing. And maybe for some of us today, maybe for some of us, it's time to come to our senses. And God's been whispering in our ear, come home. Just come home. As we close this morning, I want you to know that God loves you more than you can imagine. And maybe for the first time today or maybe for the first time in a long time today, we need to come home as a prodigal who's been far from God. We need to know his forgiveness and 
We need to know his embrace. We've come to our senses and we just need to make a decision. So I'm going to ask you to bow in prayer with me. And I don't know where you're at and I don't know what you're dealing with and and I don't know what God has been saying to you, but, but simply this. If you know you've been far from God and it's time to come home, would you just pray this prayer quietly to yourself? Lord Jesus, I've sinned against you and against others. Forgive me. I surrender my my life to you now and forever. Help me live for you. If you made that decision, we'd love to know. We'd love to pray for you. You can use that welcome card in the pew back and just let us know. Drop it off at the hub. We won't bug you, but we just want to pray for you. Maybe you need prayer today for something that's going on in your life. Maybe you want prayer for a prodigal that's in your life. Some of our elders will be down at the front this morning and more than willing to pray for you. Maybe you just need to pray quietly by yourself and that's okay. But understand this, that the posture of the Father is always one that is pure and willful. It's always uh, sacrificial. It's always intentional. And it always wants the highest good for you. Will you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, this morning, we ask that you would give us your love, that you would help us to see that in a very practical way. That for some of us, we made a decision this morning. I'm done doing it my way. I've come to my senses. And God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would seal that decision in their heart. That that decision couldn't be robbed from them or taken from them or stolen from them. But God, that through our prayers and through, through encouragement, we would, in, we would support that. For some of us, we're praying for a prodigal. We've got that name in our head. And God, give us wisdom in how to posture ourselves towards them. And God, as we walk out of here this week, would you help us to love people the way you loved us? Maybe we need to give somebody a hug today and let them know somebody cares. We thank you for your truth. Guide us now in the power of your spirit this week in all that we do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.